Welcome to the world of Aeora, a news and lore podcast about the Pillars of Eternity games, as well as Obsidian Entertainment's upcoming release, Avowed. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the world of Aeora. I'm your host Eric, aka Gingerino. Thanks everyone for joining me on another episode as we dive into the history and lore for Pillars of Eternity 1 and 2 as we gear up for the release of Avowed. For those new to the show wondering why we pair all those shows together, it's because they share the same fantasy setting known as Aeora. And so, as the theory goes, if we dive into those Pillars of Eternity games, we can glean some insights into what the world of Aeora is like, and therefore appreciate more of what Avowed will be like, and the nuances, and the writing, and such. But mostly, it's also just a way for those of us who love the lore of this world, who are into this kind of thing, to geek out about it and enjoy ourselves just learning some things about a really cool fantasy setting developed at Obsidian. Today's episode is an extension on my previous episode where I discussed the undead in general and I was focusing on skeletons in particular. I was talking about the life cycle of the undead creatures that we see in Pillars of Eternity and therefore how we see them in Avowed. And I briefly discussed liches. And by discussed, I mean I briefly just mentioned liches and other forms of undead creatures, but I didn't take the time to actually talk about them. In today's episode, we are actually going to be going into detail on liches and void seers and discussing one of the most powerful mages in the world of Aeora that is known, whose name is Consulhot. I'm curious, what exactly did you find there? So before we dive straight into the lore that is related to Aeora, I just want to quickly talk about what a lich even is. Now when I say lich, I'm saying the word L-I-C-H. Maybe it's a lick, uh, but I'm going with lich. I know that that may not be necessarily correct, but I don't really care. That's what I'm going with. So when I say that, now you know what I mean. Uh, If you have experienced fantasy media in any way, shape, or form, you've probably come across this idea of a lich. At one point in time, they were, uh, it was basically just a word that described any kind of undead creature, Uh, but as time went on and fantasy stories evolved and there became tropes within the genre, a lich ended up kind of becoming the the uber undead, is what I was calling it before. Basically, that really powerful undead character who has immortality, etc., etc. And that's kind of what they have come to known as today. Liches are some of the final bosses in some pre-made Dungeons and Dragons campaigns and in some video games. They can be very powerful creatures of the undead variety. One of the key features of the Lich that makes them different from regular undead is their propensity to be immortal. And that's kind of the entire idea of becoming a Lich. When you are a person who decides that you're going to move towards becoming this kind of creature, it's, it's about the idea of being made eternal. Looking up a lich on Wikipedia, uh, one paragraph describes them as such. A lich's most often depicted distinguishing feature from other undead in fantasy fiction is the method of achieving immortality. Liches give up their souls to form quote-unquote soul artifacts. This can be something like a soul gem or a phylactery, the source of their magic and their immortality. Many liches take precautions to hide and or safeguard one more of their soul artifacts that anchor that part of a lich's soul to the material world. If the corporeal body of a lich is killed, that portion of the lich's soul that had remained in the body does not pass on to the next world, but rather exists in a non-corporeal form capable of being resurrected in the near future. 
the idea of a lich is that you are essentially making yourself immortal because you're making it so that even if your body is slain, your soul will not die and you can have another body resurrected. And so we see examples of liches within popular culture all the time. I'm not going to mention many of any of them here because it would actually spoil some narratives. And even if it's old narratives, I don't want to ruin it for people. Uh, but this idea that you take your soul, you split it into pieces, you hide it in one or more things so that your soul's protected from being completely destroyed and therefore you can live immortally. That's what a lich is classically described as or seen in fantasy fiction. And in the world of Aeora, for Pillars of Eternity and likely Avowed, liches follow the same thing. Liches have a phylactery by which they anchor their soul to the material world, which is known as the here, and it causes them from being able to be killed entirely from their soul to leaving and going to the beyond, and therefore actually dying. On the Pillars of Eternity and Fandom Wikipedia website, we, there is an article for liches, and I'm going to be reading from that for most of the information here. A lich is described as a vessel creature, which means that they are an undead creature, so they are not really alive, but they're not fully dead either, that kind of that undead uh, category of speaking, like a zombie or a skeleton that can walk around. Uh, and this is the background for a lich. Some wizards seek fame, others fortune. Many seek both. For those whom neither will satisfy, there is immortality. Few wizards possess the knowledge to grasp at eternity, and fewer still the fortitude, because the cost is steep indeed. One must sacrifice one's soul. Neither living nor dead, a lich retains their mental acuity but does not hunger for the flesh of kith as undead creatures do. To avoid the decay of undeath, a wizard must bind their soul to their body. However, the process for doing so is unpleasant in the extreme. So before I continue on, um, so we're given a, a quick description here of what makes a lich vastly different from a regular undead. And if you remember my previous episode last week, you'll remember that a regular undead creature is characterized by the need to consume living flesh because it is suffused with this living essence, the stuff that souls are made out of, and that living essence stems off this decay and decomposition that an undead creature is undergoing. And so it's in their best interest to consume that essence so that they can, in a quote-unquote, live longer. But a lich doesn't have to worry about that. They don't have the hunger for flesh, and they're not undergoing decomposition, which means they retain their mental acuity. Well, I shouldn't say they don't undergo decomposition. Their body definitely continues to age, and it looks super gross, um, but they keep all of their mental faculties in check. And so that's one thing that's different from regular undead. The other thing that is different is the process by which you become a lich in this world is very extreme. I mean, becoming an undead creature in the first place is already extreme by many people's standards, uh, but this makes it look relatively accessible, the, the difference between regular undead and a lich kind of undead. First, they must carve a series of intricate runes into their skull, then overlay that with a complex network of spellwork, and finally complete the transformation by boring a hole into their forehead that they then plug with a large piece of Audra. Okay, so there's a lot there to cover. So if you want to become a lich, you have to do these things. First, you have to carve a series of intricate runes into your skull, all right? There's no way of getting around that. That is already pretty extreme in the first place. Like, you have to 
A, know what these intricate runes are and be able to be fluent enough in them that you can carve them into your own skull, which is not a pleasant experience. That right there requires a high skill set, a high tolerance for pain, a dedication, all that kind of stuff. So it's already getting pretty extreme. Once you have carved these intricate runes in your skull, you overlay that with a complex net of spell work, which again would require you to have a deep understanding of the arcana. And the last thing you have to do to transform this uh, yourself into a lich is you bore a hole into your forehead, and then you plug that hole with a large piece of Adra. Adra in this world is a unique resource. It's like a gemstone, and the unique thing about it is that it can house or transfer soul energy in or through it. And so it's often used in experimentations kind of like this, where it will probably house the soul. And we'll discuss this more as I read on through these paragraphs, but essentially what the Lich is doing at this point is they are turning their own head into a phylactery. They are binding their soul to their skull in such a way that it cannot leave, and they are holding it there. Uh, the Adra is a required piece of that because Adra houses soul essence. Um, the runes and the spell work are probably there to cause this to happen in the first place. It's almost like the runes and the spell work create the binding between your skull and your soul, and then the Adra holds it all in place. That's kind of how I would picture it, but we're not actually privy to the information of how it's supposed to go. And very likely the developers at Obsidian didn't have a specific method in mind. They just, this seemed like the steps to do. What drives a wizard to become a lich? The reasons are as varied as the wizards themselves. One might fear death, while another might fear being bested by a rival. Still, another may desire only the ability to continue their work, amassing ever greater knowledge of the nature of essence and the runes and incantations required to master it. Whatever their reasons, all liches develop the characteristic form of their kind as their bodies rapidly wither and age. Their skin grows thin, almost translucent, stretched across their bones like a thin film of algae spread across a pond. What hair remains runs white. Their body cools until it touches hold the warmth of glacier ice. And in the end, the only their magic, might, and malice remain. So this first part of what I just read talks about the motivation for becoming a lich. And it, these are the pretty classical motivations that you see in fantasy literature. Uh, usually it's wizards, someone who's a master of the arcane, who just doesn't want to die. You know, they're afraid of death. Or... They don't want to be beaten by someone, so they want to stay alive longer so that they can destroy their rival. Uh, or it's just wanting to continue their work, because wizards in these fantasy worlds tend to be very dedicated to their work, and their work potentially spans generations, and they're unwilling to pass that work on to somebody else. Uh, they want to continue it themselves, and so they find a way to gain immortality so they can continue doing it. Now, these are three common reasons that I see for people becoming liches, even outside of this fantasy world. Uh, their body continues to wither and age, and so it looks super gross. <laughs> you know, uh, their skin basically just holding and sagging on like algae over a pond. Their hair is white. Their skin is very, very cold. And as described at the end of these statements, only their magic, might, and malice remain. And so it doesn't sound like liches are all necessarily the greatest of people. If a lich body is destroyed, they become a void seer, which is a floating skull. So that's the background behind liches, what they are. And we're going to talk about void seers in a second, but I'm not done with all the lore on liches. We've already discussed what a lich is in general, but there's a few more paragraphs of lore here that kind of just go a little bit more in depth on uh, the particulars of, of, of lichdom, if you will. 
liches are as formidable as they are rare. So they're not very easy to find. You don't see a lot. In fact, in the games, you only run into one, as far as I understand it. Although there might be like a lich battle mage or something, I can't recall. They're masters of the arcane who have discovered ways to extend their own lives without facing the mental deterioration of vampires and other vessels, uh, such as undead skeletons and all that like I was talking about before. There are no reliable records or accounts of how to become a lich. The few who've managed to succeed have been hesitant to share their methods, but it's believed that the pro process is both difficult and excruciating. The annals of wizardry are littered with cautionary tales of ambitious mages who attempted immortality but managed only to rip their own bodies apart. So this lore is obviously coming from a source that has not um, learned what we learned from the previous um, paragraphs. Uh, however, we do learn those that particular information that I've already read from one of the mages of the world that we're talking about, Consul Hot, and we'll get to him in a minute. While liches decay physically, they retain their mental faculties, which is part of what separates them from vessels, uh, just regular other undead. They achieve this by binding their own essence to phylacteries, which are popularly represented as vials or charms worn or kept close to the body. However, none of the few known liches have ever revealed the nature or location of their phylacteries, so theories about them are ultimately speculation. Now again, we've already discussed this, that um, what Consul Hot and other liches probably do in this world is they their phylactery is their own skull. But technically speaking, a phylactery can be anything. So it could be a vial or a charm that you wear around your neck or something like that. The only problem with things like that is that they are a lot more prone to destruction, I guess you could say, than other things, such as your skull. Most liches are believed to be powerful wizards or mages, but this is a generalization rather than a rule. One lich who lived almost a thousand years ago was a priestess of Barath and who was sustained through her own rigorous devotion. Animancers have been rumored to experiment with similar concepts, but given the profession's questionable reputation, none have been willing to admit this. And so that last part is just kind of like, I guess, breaking a trope of liches is that it's always wizards. Wizards are the people who become liches, but it's like actually anyone can do it as long as they have learned the thing that they need to learn. Now, statistically speaking, it would be a wizard because who would know the complex runes? Who would know the complex spell work that needs to be done? A wizard, very likely. But in this case, apparently a thousand years ago, a priestess of, Bar of Barath had these skills available to become a lich. Now, the only lich that we run into within the game is Consul Hot. He's the only one that's account encountered. Consul Hot is one of the Archmagi of Aora. Well, I don't know if he's an Archmagi, as in he's in the circle of Archmagi, uh, but he is definitely as powerful as one of the members within the circle of Archmagi, which is a faction within the world of Aora. Before we talk about Consul Hot, let's quickly talk about what a Void Seer is. A Void Seer is a particular type of enemy. It's a vessel creature, so therefore it's undead, just like, uh, you know, undead skeletons and liches and vampires and all that. And when a lich dies uh, and they've used their skull as a phylactery, then they become a Void Seer. This is the description of a Void Seer. Animancers, necromancers, and other unscrupulous spellcasters. Um, animancers, by the way, are essentially scientists that study the soul who experiment with the bodies of the kith have been known to create all sorts of constructs and vessels. Some exist as subjects for study and others as sources for amusement. Void seers are skulls filled with essence. And again, essence is the name of the stuff that souls are made of. So these skulls are filled with soul energy, if you will. The first accounts of void seers come from Old Valia, which is a older faction within the world of Aora where a now infamous necromancer created them as a diversion for court. 
Since then, they've been used as patrols, guards, and attendants. Their small size makes them easier to create and direct. So Void Seers are essentially just floating skulls. They're, they float around, they have soul energy, this essence inside of them, which powers them, keeps them alive, quote-unquote. And uh, they can be an annoying nuisance of an enemy, although you do uh, see them when you're at a higher level, at least in my, if I remember correctly in the game. I, I ran into them at a much later level, so uh, you know this isn't something you want to run into at a lower level. I, I love the first accounts of void seers that it was some dude in old Valia who would bring them to court as a distraction <laughs> i find that hilarious just a bunch of these skulls floating around for the sake of distraction uh, but that's what a void seer is and that is what a lich will turn into after their body is destroyed now this description makes it seem like void seers are a little more mindless that they don't have much thought to them but i imagine that a lich turned into a void seer has much more rationality and cognitive function now, with that said, let's dive into the Archmage of Consulhot and talk about his story. A soul full of divine riddles. Did you come seeking answers? Or are the forces that set your path a mystery even to you? Consulhot is one of the most powerful mages in Aeora. Um, he spent a lifetime studying magic, and he creates many spells. Uh, in fact, if you are playing as a wizard or a lot of spellcasting types within Pills of Eternity, you have access to some of Consul Hot's spells. Many spells in this world are named after the person who invented them. So, for instance, in terms of Consul Hot, you have access to spells like Consul Hot's Corrosive Siphon, Consul Hot's Parasitic Staff, Consul Hot's Draining Touch, Consul Hot's Crushing Doom, and Consul Hot's Draining Missiles. You can kind of detect a pattern with Consul Hot's magical spells. They usually, in some way or another, tend to drain es essence, energy, or life force, whatever, from one target and brings it to you. So it's all about draining, siphoning, uh, and stuff like that. So this tends to be his area of focus. So he's created a lot of spells. And when you create spells, that's kind of what makes you an archmage. That's how you know you're powerful when people are casting spells that, you, that are named after you. Uh, he extended his life by pouring his soul into a phylactery. And so there you go. He, you have Consul Hot. He's become a lich. So that's just, it's just kind of casually written there. Consul Hot is a lifelong rival of Lengreth, one of the other archmages of the world and the other archmages who have tried to take him down by any means necessary, including hiring a mercenary army that Consul Hot dismisses as merely a nuisance. You actually get to experience this in Pills of Eternity 1, the White March DLC. At one point, you can go seek out Consul Hot, and there's an entire mercenary army going after him just to take this one guy down, and he's just kind of annoyed that they're there. Like, that's how powerful this guy is. Actually, Consul Hot is so powerful that he has a sky dragon eyeball in his office when you go to see him. That's something you can notice in the background. Um, it, it's not said whether or not he traded for it, but very likely he killed a sky dragon, sky dragon and took the eyeball. So he's at least as powerful as one sky dragon on his own. And that's, that's something to say right there. He's ultimately trying to discover time manipulation, which has been pioneered by other archmages, such as Caldebald the Red and Mara of the Seven Hills, uh, and he, I, he, he wants to become uber powerful, right? That's like what a lot of wizards like this person want to do. Uh, but in order to do what he needs, he needs a soul that can draw on the power of the ether. 
uh, such as a Watcher's Soul. And if you've played Bills of Eternity, you'll remember that you are a Watcher character, which is why Console Hot's very interested in stealing your soul. But this this is Console Hot. He's a very powerful mage. He studies corrosive and siphoning magic. He is pretty much antagonistic to the rest of the Circle of Arch Magi. He is not benevolent. He is malevolent, if anything else. And he has subjected himself to lichdom. So he has carved the runes in his skull. He has laid that network of spells across of his skull. And he has borne a hole and put a piece of Audra inside of it. So he is a lich now. He is undead. And if you succeed in killing him, uh, you actually get an item from him called Consul Hot's Skull, which is classified as a pet in the first game. So you can just have the skull floating around following you. Uh, which your character can detect the power and energy of console hot still on the side of it, but they don't really do anything for the rest of the game. However, it's kind of hilarious in the sen- in how the story goes from here. And so the story of console hot actually gets more interesting with the second Pillars of Eternity game. In the first Pillars of Eternity game, he is merely a lich who is super powerful, big bad guy, you gotta go take him out. And he's so powerful that he looks at an entire mercenary army and just sort of like, you know, doesn't care. It's like not a big deal for him. That's how powerful this guy is. And you kill this guy, and then you get to take his skull as a pet afterwards. So long story short, Consul Hot's skull is still infused with his spirit. And so as it turns out, Consul Hot is still completely sentient and aware of his surroundings while inside of his own skull. But he can't really do anything because he's just a skull. And so, you know, he gets hanging around in your your bag, so he's just kind of bouncing around your weapons and armor. He gets thrown in a storage room somewhere, etc., etc. And of course, he's got all these plans on gaining his power back and killing you and blah, 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 blah. And Pills of Eternity 2, you do run into him again, and he has a body. And you're like, what's going on? I killed you already. I have your skull back at my keep, you know, except my keep was destroyed. And it's revealed that he apparently, when he was just at Cadnua, which is the stronghold that you owned in the first Pills of Eternity game, he just he had all of these plans to gain power back. He was going to destroy your stronghold, and he was going to kill you, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then at the beginning of Pillars of Eternity 2, of course, your stronghold's completely destroyed by the god Aethys, and so he wasn't able to do that. But what he decided to do, kind of detecting the power that was in the Deadfire Capelago, he dragged his skull form, it described here, one mouthful of soil at a time, to the deer wooden shore so that he could gain passage by boat to the Deadfire archipelago and we don't understand what happened to him then this guy as just a skull managed to get him from one continent to a completely separate area of the world uh, and managed to gain his power back managed to revive a, a body and continue his work and of course come after you because you know he doesn't like you after what you did uh you can pay him back however if you decide that you know what poor console hot he's he's um gone through enough in this world and you can give him a titanic body of a former god (laughs) i'm not going to give away any of the details of how or why or where just in case there's any new players out there uh but you can basically give him the body of a god down the road if you really want to be on team console hot in the second game that's that's up to you i'm not going to tell you what to do or not but yeah that's the story of console hot it's not a very long story, uh, which is which is good because I'm I'm already kind of running around the regular showtime at this point. But it, it's it's a satisfying one. I just, I love the person's determination to like I'm I'm gonna get this guy. I'm gonna even if I have to 
eat soil and cross this continent one mouthful of soil at a time. I'm going to get to the dead fire. I'm going to become a person again. It's, it's hilarious to me. And so that's console hot. And those are liches and void seers. Now, let's ask the obvious question. What does this have to do with Avowed? Is an oath worth the weight of a crown? You know, I ask this question every single time, and I realize one day Avowed's going to come out, and then I'm going to have to have a different segment for this part of the show. <laughs> anyway, anyways, I'm just sort of talking to myself at this point. So what does this all have to do with Avowed? Well, in regards to Liches, Voidseers, and Console Hot, a Voidseer is a regular type of enemy which I could see making an appearance in Avowed. There's no reason something like that could not happen. Um, so if we see void we could very well see void seer enemies which is just floating skulls really so as cool as they are that might not be the most special thing it depends how powerful they're made in avowed a lich on the other hand is a very rare occurrence in the world but that doesn't mean that it won't occur in avowed and i kind of half expect us to run into a lich at some point in time whether or not it will become like one or two liches that exist and they're like minor bosses or mini bosses before something else or if they are main bosses for large arcs of the narrative i don't know um, my personal speculation is that perhaps one of the dlcs for avowed might feature a lich as a major enemy because whatever the narrative for the main line avowed is going to be we're going to resolve that in our first playthrough but then what are we going to have for dlc well a lich enemy just makes a lot of sense and bringing console hot back into the equation there's no reason it couldn't be console hot right depending on when and where avowed takes place within the history of aora there's no reason that a console hot couldn't make an appearance in the living lands it does depend a little bit i suppose on whether or not he's in his skull form state after the watcher destroys him in pillars of eternity one unless the developers at obsidian decide that they just want to make it canon or at least canon for this game that console hot wasn't killed by the watcher and got away um, that doesn't have to be like a solid canon it could just be like a, a for this game only kind of thing that kind of canon does exist in fa fiction we do see that in fantasy quite a lot where some things are made canon for certain games and th some things are made canon for other games uh, so who knows uh, but console hot could make an appearance i don't necessarily know if he's going to be in the base game um, he he could because he is featured in Pillars of Eternity 2, and Carrie Patel, the lead director for this game, said that there's a couple of characters from the second Pillars game that are going to be in Avowed. Uh, but we also see Console Hot in the first game, and since she mentioned the second game specifically, it makes me think maybe we won't be seeing Console Hot. But perhaps he'll come back in a DLC as a major bad guy that you get to face down or something like that. Who knows? So we could see any of these. I think least likely we'll see Console Hot. Uh, decent chance we'll see a Lich. Um, we might not, I'm not going to set that expectation up, uh, but the uh, Lich is a very good, reliable go-to for an uber bad guy to have for a side quest or a DLC, so there's a decent chance. And I would say there's a fairly higher chance that we'll run into Void Seers within the game. It just depends on what kind of enemies and what kind of story about is telling. That's everything for today's episode. Thanks everyone for joining me as we discuss Liches, Void Seers, and Console Hot. It, it, this, this has been a lot of fun, just kind of looking at that side of fantasy today, talking about undead creatures and the bestiary and specific mages within this world and kind of how things work. I like that the lore is sensible in a way that like A leads to B, B leads to C. There, there's reasons for why things happen, and I like that a lot. 
If you enjoyed today's episode, send me an email, worldofaora at gmail.com, or hit me up on Twitter, at worldofaora. I mostly just post updates for when shows come out, but if anything new happens on the horizon, I'll be sure to let you know there. As for myself, nothing new to really talk about that will be that interesting to you guys. I recently picked up two games on Steam. One is an older game called Antichamber, and a second game is much newer, is called Viewfinder. Um, there was a game that came out on Xbox game called, called Maquette, I believe is how it's pronounced, which is a re- first-person recursive puzzle game, which I, I've been enjoying, but it didn't have the... And this is weird to say about a puzzle game, but it didn't have a punchiness to it, like... It didn't, everything just kind of flowed from one puzzle to the next. It seemed obvious what to do. And that's not me saying I'm smart. Like, I haven't even gotten a quarter of the way through the game. But I, it didn't have a lot of staying power with me. But it, it uh, gave me a craving again for a good puzzle game, you know, or something mind-bending. Like, I really enjoyed the Portal games. I really loved Superliminal. Uh, one of my favorite games of all time is The Witness. And I heard about Antichamber, never purchased it, and I went and bought it. And so glad I did. That game... Is upside down and backwards in so many ways. It's a game where you have to like, you really have to learn the rules of the game, but it doesn't tell you what the rules of the game are. So you got to figure out these puzzles, but you don't yet understand the physics of of what's going on. It's very non-Euclidean in a lot of ways. Uh, As well, the game Viewfinder, which is kind of like super liminal in a way, but I would say a little bit more grounded perhaps, which is a weird thing to say about Superliminal and Viewfinder. In Viewfinder, you are in this giant simulation trying to solve the crisis of climate change, etc., etc., which is kind of disjointed from the main gameplay mechanic, if I might add. But anyways, I don't want this to go on too long. You take photographs, and then you hold a photograph up in front of your character's face, and you're looking at it, and the world is behind you, and then you can click a button on your controller, on your keyboard, And the photograph is then superimposed onto the world, right? So you're like looking at this 2D image on your screen and then boom, all of a sudden that 2D photograph is superimposed into the three-dimensional world and you can now walk into the photo as if it was three-dimensional. It kind of erases everything that was in its path, etc. and things like that. But it's been an interesting mechanic. I love seeing games experiment with this kind of thing and... It's been a lot of fun to play around with. I'm just kind of trying to find short puzzle games to play until Baldur's Gate 3 comes out, which I know a lot of you guys are excited for. Anyways, that's what I've been playing. Sorry, that section doesn't usually go this long, but uh, if you enjoyed that, thanks for listening to me ramble. If you've been playing anything similar or you have any recommendations for me on games I ought to play, uh, send me an email, worldaora at gmail.com. Uh, let me know if you're excited for Baldur's Gate 3 as well, because uh, I'm basically just holding out at this point till that game comes out. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode. I've been your host, Eric, a.k.a. Junior Reno. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you guys next time.